We've been in this series, the Epiphany season. Um, we've called it Look to the Light, and it's helping us do just that. It's helping us in this season that is a gloomy season to look to the light of Christ in our lives. And our prayer during these weeks has been that these stories, that the prayers of Epiphany would intersect with our lives again in a way, indeed in new ways and in life-giving ways, helping us to build a bridge between the life of Christ and our lives simply by paying attention, by opening our eyes, by looking and seeing uh, the goodness of God in our everyday. As we've looked at these stories, we've seen what God has been trying to teach us. We've, we've seen uh, the Magi from the east follow the start of Bethlehem and find Christ in the most unlikely of places. We've witnessed the baptism of Christ in the River Jordan um, by John the Baptist and the affirmation on him and the blessing of the Father um, calling Christ his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. We've witnessed Jesus getting the party started, so to speak, at a wedding in Cana by saving the embarrassment of wine running out and performing his first miracle of water to wine. We've seen the disciples left stunned at the fishing miracle of Jesus, re dropping their nets, literally rethinking everything to follow this wandering rabbi and following him. We've seen Jesus casting out a demon and people being amazed at his teachings and not only his teachings, but at, his, at the power. Word spread, his fame was spreading. We've seen Jesus heal Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. We've seen him take her hand and lift her up and the fever leaving. We've seen Jesus healing a leper, the leprosy and, and the stigma and shame from that ailment leaving. Jesus, uh, in this season of Epiphany and through these stories over the past six weeks, he's been born, he's been baptized, he's been affirmed, he's been initiated into his ministry, he's called his disciples, he's began to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And not only that, he's began to embody the kingdom of God in his life with his miracles, good works, acts of kindness and compassion. What we've seen as we've looked to the light is that Jesus is the living embodiment of the presence of God walking among us, bringing the rule and the reign of God in both word and in deed. That Jesus is the divine light walking among us. I wonder, have you ever experienced like blinding light? You know the kind of light that's so strong that it dazzles you and you cannot see your surroundings. You can only see light. A long time ago, before, before coronavirus, before, before Netflix, um, people like me, we would get in our car and we would drive to a theater and pay money to go and sit in a dark room full of strangers to watch a movie. Um, before we could live stream or before we could stream it on our TVs, that's what we used to do. Um, boy, I miss doing things like that, just simply going to the cinema. And I remember on occasion going to the cinema during the daytime in the summer. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It wouldn't happen hugely frequently because often during the daytime in summer, there's a million and one other things to be doing. But I remember going to the cinema during the daytime to see this movie with my friends. Um, and I remember... As soon as the movie was over, we'd walk down the corridor and bust open the cinema doors and we would be blinded by the daylight, um, completely 
blinded. We couldn't see a thing. It took a minute to, to adjust to the light because our eyes had been adjusted to the darkness of the theater for two hours and you open those doors and suddenly the light is just too much. Maybe you've had that experience. Um, in a sense, in a sense, this is the kind of thing that's going on in this passage in Mark 9 that Ian was reading from when we see this blinding light appearing to Peter, to James, and to John. They have this really strange, disorientating, and yet magnificent experience with Jesus. One moment, they're going up the mountain, and in Luke's gospel, it tells us that they're going up to pray. Indeed, it tells us that they're actually sleepy. But suddenly, Jesus transforms before their eyes, and they're blinded with the light. The passage says that the light was dazzling, that his face shone, that his clothes shone. So white, in fact, uh, like, like a brightness that the earth could not produce. Um, not even the greatest laundry could be this white. It was a brightness to his clothing and his face. And then in this strange, somewhat disorientating encounter, uh, we see Moses and Elijah appear alongside Jesus and they begin to talk. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they've no idea, once their eyes start to adjust, they've no idea what is happening and what any of this means. And Peter, in true form, perhaps in his nervousness, jumps in um, with a, a stupid idea, actually, um, telling Jesus how great it was to be there and that they should immediately build a shrine to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah right there and then. I guess that's I guess you can see where he's coming from as a, as a Jewish man. Um, Moses is a, is a really big deal. Uh, Elijah is a really big deal. These are the foremost figures within Israel's story and history representing the law and the prophets. And here they are appearing on the mountaintop alongside the wandering rabbi, Jesus, that is their friend. And they're bathed in light. They're bathed in glory. And Peter's I'm sure is terrified. The passage says he's, that they're filled with fear. They have an encounter with the glory of God in this moment. But he says the first thing that comes to his mind. They have no idea what's going on. And then we hear this voice spoken over Jesus. And we, we've heard this before. It says this, this is my son, the one whom I love. Listen to him. You'll remember that that voice was the same voice that spoke over Jesus when he was baptized. We covered that in uh, the first few weeks of the series. An amazing encounter with the divine taking place in this mountain. Peter, James, and John don't know what to say. And then the light show is over, and they're coming back down the mountain, and they're amazed. Uh, they're still terrified, completely unsure what it means. And Jesus says some things that continue to puzzle them. He instructs them not to tell anyone about this encounter until, quote, the Son of Man has been raised to the dead. And he also says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So Jesus is speaking in riddles in a sense. They don't know what to make of this. As, as, Jewish, um, as Jewish men, they would have understood that resurrection is part of their story, but not for just one person. It would have been the collective resurrection of all people. And so when Jesus says the Son of Man has been raised from the dead, this is strange. They don't know what it means. But Jesus wants to keep a lid on what has just happened. Now we know reading back as Christians, 
what Jesus is speaking of here. In fact, the very first people to read the Gospel of Mark would completely know what Jesus is talking about here because Mark was written about 40 years after Jesus had died and appeared resurrected from the grave in about 70 AD. So we know what Jesus is speaking to, his death and resurrection. And the first readers know what this passage is speaking about. But poor Peter, James and John, as they're coming down the mountain at the time, they're, they have no idea. They have no idea. They're disoriented and, and disorientated and overwhelmed and indeed fearful, having had this encounter. And the story of Jesus, his transformation or his transfiguration, it describes what appears to be an actual event with deep, deep significance. The deepest significance of everyday reality suddenly confronts Peter, James, and John. We could chalk this experience up to a kind of hallucination, albeit a very odd one, but the Jewish scriptures and the traditions tell us of events and encounters like this happening all of the time, that people had experienced moments like this when the, when the veil of ordinariness is drawn away and something that was right in front of you, but you had not seen it the whole time, something you had missed, something that you had not seen, suddenly you see it clearly. Suddenly the penny drops. Suddenly it's clear. It's as if it's been there the whole time, but you hadn't realized that a fuller reality is disclosed. Most of us maybe haven't had experiences like that perhaps, but we should be free to affirm that this kind of thing happens and happens to people often unexpectedly, and it usually changes their lives encounters with the divine. Our prayer this morning could be, Lord, give us eyes to see what is there. Help us to pay attention to your glory, to your goodness that is all around us every day, lest we might miss it. To understand the significance of this event, let's recap very, very quickly. So far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has has given his disciples a whole new way of seeing what God is doing in the world. He's given his disciples a new view of God's kingdom. How has he done this? He's done this through miracles, through actions, through his acts of kindness and compassion, turning water to wine, healing people from their illnesses, delivering people from their demons, the things that hold them back, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. These puzzling but profound words, all of this has been giving these disciples a little glimpse of what this kingdom is all about, what this thing that God is doing in the world is all about. Here's what N.T. Wright says. He says, those outside look and look, but they never see. The disciples are having their eyes opened so that they can see for the first time the inner reality of God's kingdom and the central truth that even though he doesn't look like what they have been expecting, Jesus really is the Messiah. Thus, the story so far keeps telling us about eyes being opened in several senses, and it all concentrates on Jesus himself and God's kingdom that is arriving with him. The reality in this story of Jesus being transfigured is a great revelation that this is the Messiah, the one in whom God is bringing this new reality to be in the world. 
Yet it's only a glimpse and only for a few of the disciples at this time. The other reality of, God, of Jesus' work revealed in this story is that he's also completing and continuing the tasks of the great prophet Elijah uh, and the task of the greatest prophet of all, Moses. He's continuing that work, and this is why he appears with them. Now they are here shining in light alongside Jesus. And often people are confused by what that means. Is this a revelation of Jesus' divinity? Well, in a sense, it really is not, because that would mean uh, that Elijah and Moses are in fact too being revealed as divine. And Mark, the writer of the gospel, does not want us to think that. Mark believes in Jesus' divinity. He hasn't told us why yet. Rather, this story is speaking about, it's a sign of of Jesus being completely caught up, bathed in the love and the power and the kingdom of God, so much so that it transforms his whole being, his whole being, every atom in his body transformed with light in a similar way that music transforms words when they're sung. Something is completely shifted. It's transfigured. And it's a sign, not of Jesus' divinity, but it's a sign that Jesus is not indulging in fantasies about God's kingdom, but that he is speaking and doing the truth. He is doing God's work. It's a sign that he is indeed the one whom we have a sure hope. He is the true prophet, the true Messiah. In a sense, it's a validation of the ministry and the mission that he is on. That is the big point of this story. Jesus is the one. And Jesus is the one for us, the one whom we follow. He is the one in whom God has inaugurated this new way of being human in the world, this new uh, society that he is building, this new world that he is remaking, is, has come and is, in th- is through Christ himself. Secondly, what's going on here? Interesting that all of the accounts of this story, this transfiguration, this dazzling light, this brightness of Jesus shining forth on the mountaintop, all of these stories immediately are followed by the story of a sick boy who is so ill that the disciples cannot cure him. And in a sense, we go from Jesus' mountaintop experience and we descend straight back down into the pain and the difficulty of real life and real ministry with a a boy who is so so ill, um, uh, demonized, the scripture tells us, uh, a seemingly immovable illness. We go from a mountaintop experience right down into the valley. Every single account structures the story like this. And there are some great paradoxes here for us because it's as if the mountaintop experiences equip us and sustain ministry in the depths of the valley of normal life. It's as if when beholding the glory of God, that the light gets on us so much that when we enter the dark places, the radiance of that light comes with us to remind those who need it most that God is present. It's as if the the more that we are open to the full glory of God, his presence, the more our hearts are open to the full scale of the pain of the world. 
There is great paradox for the one who follows Christ and looks to God. The glory and the pain, the intimacy and the action, the worship and the justice, the king and the kingdom. As we look to God, our hearts become and should become more and more shaped to bring that light to the world, more and more respondent to the pain and the darkness in the world, more and more adjusted to the reality of normal and everyday life. Our hearts more and more sustained and equipped for their reality when we come back down from the mountaintop experience into the normal and the everyday. And there is great paradox here if we dig a little deeper because this thing called the transfiguration of Jesus and it takes place on the Mount of Transfiguration is what it's been, is what it's been called. This thing is, is something that the church has marked and celebrated right at this moment, at the end of Epiphany, before the new season of Lent begins. And we know that Lent is a journey towards a completely different mount, a completely different hill. Here in this story, we see Jesus transfigured with the brightness and the glory of God. We get a glimpse of Christ's glory transfigured and transformed. But we know that the true glory of Christ is actually going to be shown and revealed on a completely different hill. The Mount of Transfiguration was just a glimpse for Peter, James, and John. And they were told to keep that to themselves. But the Mount of Crucifixion that Jesus alludes to in this story that he will go toward and we know he has endured. This will not just be a revealing for a few, but for the whole world, that the glory of Christ and the glory of Christ's love will not be in splendor and majesty and light, but will be in the, in the darkness and the shame and the horror of a cross on Golgotha's hill. The disciples would think that it, that would be the end of the story, but little did they know that the true glory of Christ would never shine brighter than on the Mount of Crucifixion, where Christ would bathe the world in the love and in the light of God once and for all. Great paradox is being set up here in this story in Mark's gospel. And thirdly, this transfiguration story of Jesus is a sign for us as Christians for the world it's a sign of the end this image of Jesus face shining brightly it's a sign of the end when heaven and earth are one when the brightness and the hope of heaven shines on all humanity when God's space and human space which are separate become one again. This is the end of the story. This is the eschaton. This is where our story is going. That God is remaking all things new. And on this mountaintop experience where Jesus shines bright is a glimpse of the kind of reunification of heaven and earth, the kind of new world God is making where there is hope, where there is light, where all things are well. As Julian of Norwich says, in that day all things shall be well, all things shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. 
So we see all sorts of things going on in this story, in this story of Jesus' transfiguration. And I think for us, it is particularly a story of hope in the gloom perhaps that we're living through at this time, whatever the gloom may be of the reality of our lives at this time. Today, we should know that Jesus is our everything, that he is the light, the divine light that we look to, that he is the one who shines bright in, in, the, in the gloom of our lives, that he is the hope of heaven. There is so much for us to be doing as the people of God in the days ahead, and that will be something that we look to address in the days ahead, but for this morning, for today, for now, in the here and now, as we enter this Lenten season, we should be reminded that Jesus is our everything, that he is the brightness of heaven, that he is the one who did enter death and was resurrected to life, that he is the one that we follow into all life, the one who brightens up all of our gloom and our darkness. This is the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said this, Now if our gospel remains veiled, it is only veiled from those who are lost and dying because the evil God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. As a result, the light of the good news, the radiant glory of the anointed, who is the very image of God, cannot shine down on them. We do not preach about ourselves. The subject of all our sermons is Jesus, the anointed one. He is Lord and master of all. For Jesus' sake, we are here to serve you. The God who spoke light into existence, saying, let light shine from the darkness, is the one who sets our hearts ablaze to shed light on the knowledge of God's glory revealed in the face of Jesus the anointed one. That passage is basically saying that God who spoke light into existence, when we ask the question, who is this God and what does he look like? We see who this God is in the face of Christ. That Jesus is God revealed to us. And our hearts are ablaze when we see Jesus and his divine light. So much so that we are filled with hope and that we can help take that hope and that love to the world around us, to the most unlikely of places, to the darkest of places. So this morning, let's fix our eyes again on the light of Christ, on the one who has come to point toward all that God is doing in the world, to be the great hope for our hearts and also the great hope for our world. Amen.